following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
Today's sermon is pre-recorded. Lord, I would not dare begin to say these things to my dear brothers and sisters if your Holy Spirit had not demanded that I say them. I recognize that today is the day we begin the building of the ark. I pray, Lord, that you will quicken every man and woman's heart to say, I must be a part. I must be used in this end time struggle with darkness for the redemption of men and women, precious men and women who will die if they are not brought into the ark of safety. Lord, I ask that you make it very clear to our hearts and quicken us by your Holy Spirit. I pray in your holy name. Amen. The first part that we must clearly understand is who we are and who we are not. There must be a sense of identity. We cannot imagine that we belong to the world and that we belong to Jesus at the same time. You've heard me say many times you cannot be in Washington, D.C., and New York at the same time. You cannot be in sin and in Jesus Christ at the same time. It's my desire that we be in Christ Jesus. But there are echoes of the past, and the message today is entitled, Silencing the Echoes of the Past. There are echoes of the past that come back and haunt us. And at the very foundation of the human mind is this desperate battle that occurred between Adam and Eve and the devil in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, the bride of Christ was ravished. She was stolen away from God. And God, in his great mercy, looked upon his bride and said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to Satan. He was saying, I am going to give my bride a choice. She will not have to serve you even though you have her. She can turn her heart against you. She can decide to leave you and come to me and I will pay the price for her to leave the devil and come and be my bride. Now in the story of Cain and Abel, we have the mark of Cain that is upon every one of us who are in this room. Are there any people here who are farmers? I don't think we have one farmer here. You understand, God meant for us to take care of livestock and to be farmers. He did not intend for us to ever become business people. He never intended for us to work in offices or to work in stores. That was not his heart. But almost every one of us work in offices, or in stores, or in businesses. Now, the glorious message you're going to hear in Ephesians is that your store, your business, your office, is going to be redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And it is going to be owned by Jesus. And it's going to be brought under his authority. That's part of the redemption that God is going to bring for us. Right now, you are in the office or the business that you are in. Having come to Jesus Christ, you are the change agent he has in that place to bring about the redemption of what Satan has created, that it could be made holy. 
You all understand what the word holy means? Yes, it means pure. It means clean. It means blameless. But there's one other word we usually don't associate with holy. Awful. Awful dread. God is calling us to be holy so that there is so much of Jesus Christ in us that we become an awful dread to the world. That when we're around the world, it's like the light is so bright upon us that their sins are visible to them. That the love is to be poured out so powerfully in our lives for other people that that love will shine forth their hatred. Jesus was hated and executed because of the awful dread the Pharisees and the scribes and the priests of his day had. They were terrified that the brilliance of his glory would cause Rome to see him And Rome would come and take away the temple and all the business associated with it. God wants to fill your life with such glory that the world will have an awful dread of you. He wants you to be holy. Now, in this story of Cain, I'm going to just read it for you and then make a few comments as we prepare to move into the book of Ephesians. Adam, chapter 4, verse 1 of Genesis. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. Can you imagine how excited Eve was as she began to see her belly grow? And she began to feel the kickings of a baby in her womb. No woman had ever felt that before. And I'm sure there were many times when she went to her husband and said, Honey, put your hand right here. Feel that. That's a, that's a baby. Oh, how well I remember feeling my little daughter's kick with their feet. Oh, I think that's the head. Or I think that's an elbow. And when you hear the beating of the heart, come on, dads, did you put your ear down tight against your wife's womb and listen to the heartbeat of that baby? Talk about exciting. All of the expectation, all of the hope and the desire, would this be the Messiah? Would Jesus come and use this baby to deliver them from being cast out of their home? Now, please, just think for a moment. What if this morning, as you were ready to go to church, An angel of God had appeared and said, when you come home, your house will be gone. Your bank account will be gone. Your credit cards will be gone. When you come home tonight, everything you have will be gone. And you come home, and there's a blank field where your house was. You have to get someone else to drive you there because you went out after service and your car was gone. And you knew where it was. You knew where it had been moved. So you go to that place and there's an angel standing there with a sword saying, if you come, I'll kill you. Talk about trauma. Where do you sleep that night? Out under the trees? That's what happened to our parents. 
Suddenly they were displaced. They no longer had their food supply. They no longer had their place of dwelling. They no longer had any resources except what was out there. So imagine the first shelter they built to keep the dew. Because the dew fell then, no rain fell, it was all dew. Water coming up out of the earth and dew falling. Cain is born. Abel kept the flocks. Cain worked the soil. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. He wanted to give something to God. But God was not pleased with his offering. Because there is nothing that I can offer God that will please him. You need to understand right now, you cannot create with your hands something that will cause God to be pleased with you and give you a place of standing. Redemption is the work of Jesus. Salvation is the work of Jesus. It is ours to submit to him. It is not ours to go by him. I don't have anything I can buy God with, and neither do you. So Cain's offering is rejected, but his brother brought the lamb, and the lamb was accepted. Have you offered God a sacrifice of your heart that has been accepted by God? The church is the place where we bring our offering. And there is only one offering that is acceptable before God. And that is our bodies, our money, our everything. We lay it all down and we become what the scriptures in Romans 12 calls living martyrs. An acceptable worship before God is laying our bodies on the altar of burnt offering versus using our bodies to create wickedness, thinking that God would then be happy with what we have created. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Now, now please understand, a root of bitterness and anger came into the heart of man when his life was taken over by Satan. And when we did not get from God what we wanted, and we were judged and held accountable, we, the human race, got mad. I have yet to meet a man or a woman who is not mad. We were born mad. That's doubly apparent when you look at the little children in our congregation when they want a bottle and they don't get it. What happens? Wah! And they get mad. This cute little boy, Peter, an angelic little child, until mama doesn't give him what he wants. Then that angelic little child turns into a first-class monster. Yes, your child does too. And some have too. There is that root in our hearts. And as we grow up, we learn how to press it down. We learn how to drive it underground. We learn how to have acceptable behavior. And we learn how to wait. But just watch a guy go into the kitchen where his wife is cooking. And he starts grabbing at food that he's not supposed to have yet. And the wife slaps his hand. 
Have you ever seen that? Not so much different than Peter, is it? We want what we want. And if we can't have it one way, thank you very much, we'll get it another way. How many times I've dealt with couples and what the trouble in the marriage boils down to is they each want their way and they want the other one to adhere to what they want. The marriage would be happy, honey, if you just do what I want. That's why Jesus has to stand between a husband and a wife so they don't kill each other. Cain asks his brother to go out to the field. He evidently wants to settle it with his brother. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? In other words, why is your lip poked out? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Did sin crouch at any of your doors this week? Sin of bitterness and anger? The sin of lust? Of selfishness? Pride? Let's go out in the field, he said to his brother. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Okay, now we have the whole criminal element beginning to build in the scripture from the very beginning of our time as human beings. Where we lie... We become defensive. We're angry. We deny that we are our brother's keeper, that we have any responsibility for each other. It's every man for himself. And the Lord says to him, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And God said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. Did God say that he would be hidden from his presence? No. That was Cain's decision. That he would hide from the presence of God. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Is he playing the drama card with victim? That's not familiar, is it? With anyone? The Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. I've wondered what that mark was. You know, you go to the card shop and you open the card and the card starts playing music. I wonder if God put a music button on his head where if somebody pushed it, God would begin to speak. Say, don't kill Cain or I'll kill you. I, I don't know what it was. But God put a mark that said, don't touch this man. In other words, God was trying to be redemptive for Cain. He still loved Cain. Then listen, verse 16. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence. He chose to leave the Lord's presence because of the awfulness of God's holiness. And he lived in the land of Nod. Nod in the Hebrew literally means the land of wanderings. 
east of Eden. East of Eden in the Hebrew means the place of new beginnings. So the mark of Cain is that you will always be starting over. You will never make progress. And you will be a wanderer. So what's his solution to that deal? Cain goes out and builds a city. He builds a city. A place of commerce. A place of business. And now all through the scriptures, there are two great cities that are spoken of. They stand in utter opposition one to the other. One is the city of Babylon, and the other is the city of Jerusalem. And all through the scriptures, the thread runs of the war between these two great cities. That's why God is going to send Jerusalem to Mount Olives and divide it, and the city will come and rest on that place, and Babylon will be burned utterly destroyed, and there will be one city, the city of God. I believe those of us here today will see this happen with our physical eyes before we die in our lifetime. Now, please understand these echoes of the past. We feel separated. We feel abandoned. We feel not accepted. We compensate for these things in many different ways by being busy, by trying to please everybody, by trying to fit in. Guilt. Because we've walked in the ways of darkness. We have disavowed our family. We have cut off our brothers. We are wanderers. Sometimes I feel like all I've done my whole life is start over. Start over. Try to make some progress. Can't make progress. What can I change to make progress? You know what? When I came to the National Prayer Chapel, I said I'll never start over again. This is it for me. I'm done starting over. I'm going to walk with whomever, however many it is, until the final end of all things. And we are in Christ. Because in Christ, we don't have to start over. In Christ, we don't have to wander. We simply do what he asks us to do. We go where he asks us to go, and we do what he asks us to do. We don't build our own kingdom. We don't build our own city. We are citizens of Zion, of New Jerusalem. We are not citizens of Babylon, where everything is confusion and darkness and criminality. We are part of the kingdom of heaven. And so let's talk together now about this book of Ephesians. As we begin to open up what it means to be a part of the church, as we begin to define carefully who we are. Ephesians, the first chapter, I'll never forget. I was in seminary. I had a very erudite professor of of hermeneutics and expository preaching, and I understood that he was going to be preaching in a certain church. So I wanted to go and hear him, so I could model my preaching after him. And he preached on the first chapter of the book of Ephesians. I couldn't understand anything he said. And I determined at that point that I would never preach on the first chapter of Ephesians because I didn't have a clue about how to even begin looking at this first chapter. 
Today I'm ready to begin talking about the first chapter. And I hope that as I do so, your face will not go blank and your mouth slack as you say, what in the world is this preacher talking about? It begins with grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, unmerited favor. Peace, full provision. When you say to a man who is destitute, when you say to a man who has been hounded in everything he has done or thought, now I'm going to love you even though you don't deserve it, and I'm going to give you everything you need. I'm going to become responsible for feeding you and clothing you. That's a heads up for me. I don't know about you, but I want to know what's going on. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. What he's saying is, look, I'm not going to withhold from you. I'm going to give you every gift that is in heaven. I'm not going to steal from you. I'm going to make you wealthy in spiritual riches. I'm going to give you a place of standing. I'm going to establish you. You're not going to be a wanderer. You're not going to be wondering, am I going to survive? You are going to be brought into the very presence of God. Nothing has been withheld from you. Now, I'm sure none of you have done this. But I have, for most of my life, blamed God for withholding from me. And sometimes when I pray, I still can get caught in approaching God in a way that says, why are you withholding from me? Lord, why don't we have the full manifestation of your Holy Spirit? Why are you withholding your Holy Spirit from your church? Well, that's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is there are conditions that have to be met. And until those conditions are met, he cannot pour out his Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit will come with holiness, with awful dread. And I never forget the men's prayer meeting that used to meet one night a week. You've heard Brother David talk about the night they were praying for the Holy Spirit to come and suddenly the presence of God began to pour into that room. And it was so terrifying. They wanted this presence of God to leave. They couldn't stand in his presence. Why is the Holy Spirit not coming? Because we haven't met the conditions yet for the Holy Spirit's coming. And we need to understand nothing has been withheld, but we have withheld. God does not withhold from his people. We withhold from our God. We need to understand going in, who is the giver and who is the taker? There are conditions that we must begin to meet for God to be able to give us what he wants to give us without killing us. Everything has been provided. We simply need to access what has been given. And we access what has been given by meeting the minimum conditions necessary that those gifts could belong to us. He chose us. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, the first time I read that, and the second, and the tenth, and the hundredth time I read that, I didn't get it. And then it dawned on me what he was saying. Before the creation of the world, 
he decided that he wanted a woman by the name of Debbie. And he made plans for her. And he began to weave together the elements necessary to produce the woman we know as Debbie. This was before the world was created. If we would go to the blueprints of God and turn the page to the year we are in, you would find your name there. And you would see the final construction process that God is trying to accomplish in your life and in your heart. To be prepared to do the work that God is calling you to do in this end day. And without you, there will be certain aspects of God's work that will be incomplete in eternity because you did not allow God to build you the way he wanted to build you and equip you to do the work he has assigned for you to do. We're told that He has prepared good works for us to do in love, with great affection, not with cold, calculating mind, but with a warmth of great affection. Verse 5, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. The word predestined simply means predetermined. It does not mean that what he predetermined will in fact come to pass. Because we are free moral agents. And we can sabotage his plan. We can refuse to cooperate with his plan. And we can say, I choose to not have enmity between me and the devil. I choose to be my own master, and the mark of Cain will fully come upon your life. And you will become a wanderer, separated from the covenants, and separated from the power of God. Now part of what you're going to discover as we move through this book is that God wants to form a people called the ecclesia. The word ecclesia in the Greek from which we get church literally means the called out ones. In the Greek democracy, they would have a meeting place outside of the village where all of the members would be called They were called the ecclesia. They were called out of their village, out to the place of meeting, and there all of the decisions would be made regarding the conduct of the village. The ecclesia was the governing body for their lives. They did not make decisions separate from the ecclesia. The head of the ecclesia is Jesus. So some of you come to me and you say, Pastor, what should I do? I have a standard answer. Those of you who know me well know exactly what it is. Ask Jesus. He's the head. Ask Jesus. He'll tell you what to do. We're a part of the ecclesia. We're a part of the called out ones. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons. Verse 5, I need to stop there a moment. If you have a NIV, a recent one, it may say, predestined us to be adopted as his sons and daughters. That's not true. He adopted us as his sons. He did not adopt daughters. You understand the difference? 
daughters were servants. Sons were heirs. Sons inherited the property. Wives were property in this culture. He's saying, adopted as his sons. Women in Scripture, when brought into Christ, are considered equal with men. They have the right of ownership of the property of God. That's why in the church, and I won't go to it now, but in the book of Galatians, it says there is neither man nor woman, Greek or slave. We are all one in Christ. That's why in the church, women receive the same honor that men receive. Now, I'm not talking here about gender roles. I'm talking positionally before God. Women are given the same standing before God as men are. For ownership of property. They are not second-class citizens. We have all then been adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he freely has given us and the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins. Literally in the Greek, the removal of sins. It's more than forgiveness. It's removal. Why would Jesus want to create a body and have in that body the stench of rebellion? And the stench of pride, the stench of arrogance. Why would he create a separate body to be filled with his presence, Christ in you, the hope of glory, and then have you serving Satan? What husband would be happy to have his wife ravished by another man And have her come back home and say, Honey, you you have to understand, every Monday night's my night out with different men. Would any of you guys be willing to let a wife go have an affair every Monday night? No, of course not. None of us would. Or which wife would say, I understand, tonight's the guy's night. You can go play with the girls tonight. What? Not going to happen. It would destroy the marriage. Well, do you think Jesus is going to say, okay, I know Monday night's your night to go play, or Friday night is your night to go play. You can go to the lounge. You can go to the club. You can hang out with the girls. You can do whatever you want to do. It's your, it's your veg night. What? I don't think so. Pastor, I I need one night a week to just live wild. You know, smoke the pipe a little. Live it up a little. You're in for a divorce. You're in for a separation. It's not going to happen. We need to understand, when God called together for the body, He meant for that body to walk clean in him without any hint of sexual immorality, without any hint of pride or arrogance or hardness of heart. He intended that these people be bound together one with another with integrity, 
somewhere we have to see an example, a place where all men of all races come together in the name of Jesus Christ with no judgments one against another, recognizing that we are all the same color before God. We are red. The blood of Jesus, washed in the blood, transformed into his likeness. So there cannot be even the hint of racial warfare in the body of Christ. There must be mutual love and respect. I want all races at the National Prayer Chapel as a demonstration to the world. I want Jewish people. I want Arab people. I want people of every race and nationality as a demonstration before the world that in Jesus Christ we are brought together as one. I want the world to see we live in peace with each other, in harmony, because of Jesus Christ. Verse 9, And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. And if you look at chapter 3, verse 10, it says, His intent was now that through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms. In other words, God wants to bring everything together under Christ through the medium of the church as a demonstration against the devil. Consider your place in the body of Christ. Consider making a decision to bind yourself together with this body or with another body and make a covenant agreement that you will be an ambassador of reconciliation, that you will be a part of a national ministry of prayer and reconciliation, for that is what the National Prayer Chapel is called to be. We have to begin modeling this amongst ourselves now. We have to begin to talk about what are the strategies necessary to build a community in Jesus Christ, not in the world. Lord, change our hearts. Yoke us up with you, Jesus. Use whatever bitter bridle is necessary to bring us into full alignment. Lord, let there be no bitterness left in our hearts. Let there be no anger remaining. Let there be no longer any running to the devil and to the powers of darkness, to the lust of our flesh, to the pride of our life. Lord, let it be over. Lord, this week, let each person in this house consider carefully what part they're to play with the National Prayer Chapel and what your Holy Spirit is calling them to. And Lord, we will praise you and worship you. Thank you, Jesus. I pray in your holy name. Amen.
You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. Come visit us. I love you, my brother, my sister. I'll talk to you soon. Of his glory will.